Hello again, all my fabulous, gorgeous listeners, and thank you for tuning in to another episode of the Glow West podcast. We're here to chat all about the wonderful world of sex, sexuality, and the body. As always, I'm your host, Dr. Caroline West, and I'm delighted to be part of the Tortoise Chat Network, where you can find all sorts of podcasts on politics, culture, society, trans rights, and of course, me with the Sex Podcast. If you like what we do, please do consider supporting us at patreon.com forward slash tortoise shack. It really, really does help to keep the mics on. Or if you want to spread the word about the podcast, you can pop over to Apple and rate and review. If you want to DM me on Instagram and Twitter, it is Glow West Podcast. So today I'm speaking about something very, very common, unfortunately, in our society. And that is the notion of victim blaming. And a lot of people don't seem to really understand what victim blaming actually is. And today I have two amazing guests here to explain all the nuances of victim blaming for us. Michelle Caulfield and Gemma McNally have worked with the Galway Rape Crisis Centre for a long time now, 30 years between them. So they've pretty much done it all and seen it all I would imagine too. And they also do a lot of outreach and advocacy work too on sexual violence. So Gemma and Michelle, how are you keeping tonight? Good, thank you. Yeah, we're here. You're delighted <laughs> to be here, Caroline. Thank you so much Delicious. for having us. Being here is all we can ask for in the, these lovely uh, post-COVID times or mid-COVID times anyway. So, Absolutely. Gosh, yeah. So you, you both do an extraordinary amount of work on the ground supporting victims. But I think you're, you're both on the the track as well that we need to have a cultural change in our society to really tackle the roots of sexual violence also as well. So part of that is victim blaming. Now victims, when you've been through sexual violence, there's so much in that experience, but afterwards there's also a lot of stuff you have to deal with as well. And part of that is victim blaming. So Michelle, I might go to you first. What is your understanding of victim blaming? Well, victim blaming, um, my lens obviously is, is very clear coming from a rape crisis centre background, but it's when the victim of the sexual attack is blamed. Uh, character, you know, why they were walking somewhere. Um, their, their entire being and, and, you know, is looked at and it always blows me away. Um, having watched more TV in lockdown, you realise, wow, this is huge. It's much more prevalent and ongoing because alongside working in a rape crisis center you are in a different bubble where victims are treated so incredibly well so to see it on tv and rom-coms and, and it like it's just it's blatant it's obvious it's deeper than i thought and it blows me away and it gets fortified with every decade for, for different reasons but it really is about taking taking the victim of a crime it only happens with sexual crime and blaming them for that crime so whether it's uh, you know what they're wearing how much they drank where they were walking and focusing on all of that instead of very simply turning to the perpetrator somebody that consciously chose to attack another human being in a sexual manner that is victim blaming and it's constant and it's everywhere yeah 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 definitely and and Gemma you, I suppose you'd be on the on the same lines as well absolutely I 100% agree with Michelle on all that obviously um, I heard I listened to a very good analogy of it where, you know, if a terrorist decides to walk into a building and start firing shots in a million years, we would never blame the people who happen to be standing in that building. And yet we do it constantly with victims of sexual violence. For some reason, we, we turn it on them. And of course, the why of that is is deep and and generational. We pick things up as we go along and we believe them ourselves and you know, I think we all hold some myths in our in our heads, 
and uh, that's the part that we need to kind of bust a little bit you know yeah, there's a lot of unpacking to do, especially in a country, a country like Ireland, where we've been so insular for such a long time and we're only opening up to stuff relatively recently in our history. But like you're saying there, Michelle, you're saying that you're seeing this on, on TV and, and in, in different parts of the media. So can you expand on that a little bit? I know um, some TV is great for busting myths, but others are not so great, shall we say. Yeah, well, as, as somebody that works with sexual violence, I can't watch um those csi programs the forensic oh, yeah. programs yeah no it's consistent and the romantic comedies where they do that piece of you know if he harasses her for long enough uh, he'll get the yes and, and it is harassment but it's dressed up in something entirely entirely different and it's it's language you know it's media and how we look at even how we look at a male perpetrator and a female perpetrator even that in itself and the language that that is used to describe each one is like Mars and Earth. It's just it's huge. Um, and as I said, I watched more TV and was blown away at the prevalence and the depth, you know, how media use language, how the, the criminal justice system speak about the victim, speak about the perpetrator. All of that is contributing and acting. And it was a real move for me and in, in, like I sit with victims or did for for many many years and I understood even more why they come in and they're holding that fortified self-blame mm-hmm. I should have done this I should have done that I'm a man it's not supposed to happen to me mm-hmm. saturated and fortified and even more so in the last decade where we're getting the visuals or you know our culture is so pornographic um, and it's all blaming the victim and it, it's just it's there's layers to be reconstructed and deconstructed. And, and yeah, it, it has to start with cultural change. And although education isn't all of the answer, it's a really good start. It's the only start we have. Really. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And what would your views on that, Gemma, be about, about the cultural change? Like, how do we actually bring that into things? Um, yeah, education is a really good place to start, I guess, with this. But in there's a part of where we need to look at education and kind of see what our motives for educating people are. I think absolutely education, 100% is the way to go. But in that, we need to be very careful that we're not victim blaming in itself and saying to people, you got educated and it still happened to you. You know, it's like um, if we took, you know, a, a different culture and we educated them about racism, if they were Nigerian Irish, and we said we taught them all about racism and then assumed that by doing that, they were not going to be subject to racist, racial abuse out on the street. Yeah. And that's just not the case. So our motivation for education, of course, is is needs to be for the purpose of education and, and giving people the tools that if they do come up against it or what can they do. But it's not about victim blaming them in the education of what you knew, you know, so yeah it's it's like it's complex it's all complex and cultural change is always complex because you are trying to break generations of beliefs and that we get handed down without even being aware we're being handed them you know we're we're not even aware when somebody says i look at the state of her daughter out dressed like that you know what are we saying then you know and it's a it's a flippant kind of off-the-cuff comment that you might think is harmless but actually there it is in in words victim day. Yeah, absolutely. And I know, you know, I recently um, had a, the joy of, of being on a course that you were teaching on and we were talking about victim blaming. And I gave the example of when I was in a nightclub, some guy just put his hand up my skirt and it was a knee length skirt. And, and for years they said, well, like it wasn't even a short skirt. 
And mm-hmm. I, I just didn't even think that that would be victim blaming. And it was just some way, you know, to kind of distance myself from it. And now I look back at it and it's going, oh, I was like a good victim, you know, and, and it's just all these things that you don't think about. And there's so many layers, but I would mm-hmm. never have said that skirt's too short. That's bad. I would never have said that. But I yeah. said the other thing. So yeah. it, it shows you kind of, you know, even if you think you're kind of doing OK, there's maybe still a little bit of work still to do and you know and you might it's it's all that unconscious stuff like we said of unpacking like hundreds of years of of, of victim blaming stuff I, I think I think it keeps us safe Caroline to victim blame in some way it keeps us psychologically safe because if we were to actually go around and believe that you know that this can happen everywhere and it's everywhere which we know it is but if we actually went around thinking that it would be very psychologically unsafe for us we wouldn't feel safe in the world in some way because it is so common and we know that but yet it's safer to kind of think oh that would never happen to me yeah and that that's a really interesting point as well because the, the you know there's so many why questions when it comes to sexual violence but why people victim blame as well it's almost it is too overwhelming to think you know when even when you're saying that it's like oh you never go out I'm sure you could just stay in your home and it's like even in your home you're not safe as well yeah. and, and statistically you're unsafer in your home you know for a lot of reasons mm-hmm. but that's it's huge and do you think part of that is you know part of it is like you know it, it goes back again to that education stuff but you know even things like fight or flight that's what we understood for a long long time that was the responses and it was like oh you either put up a fight or you run away and then we're like okay there's actually more responses and we have fawn and okay. freeze and mm-hmm. a lot of people are new to understanding that and don't you know are still not aware that that's an option because fight or flight has just been so ingrained in our society mm-hmm. but do you think that, that people bring that into victim blaming then are still going oh why didn't you scream and why didn't you just run away as if mm-hmm. that would be an easy option and it's just not there like do you th- is that a lack of understanding there or on that or lack of compassion maybe it's a lack of compassion and it goes deeper than that because seven mm-hmm. out of ten rape victims freeze mm-hmm. and it's a very natural and normal reaction and we would say from a rape crisis perspective it's like it's about surviving at that point because you know you're in a very violent situation but even around the harassment and the sexual coercion there's that fawning piece where women are constantly just batting down harassment whether it be verbal mm. or tone or walking across the road and getting beeped at and and you know immediately I remember with my daughter she looked down and went to my jeans too tight because somebody beat at her it's like and she would have grown up in an incredibly feminist household you know and so it, it's it's absolutely mind-boggling and and I think the harassment piece has gotten worse and we're fawning it all the time you know we're trying to like play that down and it, is, it really is the groundwork to the silence that feeds the violence you know, it's like if we don't stand up to that and culturally, you know, create that, then on we go fighting even more and it needs to change. And it, it's education absolutely will work, but it needs to you know, it needs to start in fourth, fifth and sixth class. And yeah. that's where cultural change, ha- change happens. And at least our universities, you know, so we're starting at the top and going right down eventually. And things are looking better. You know, the new the new system is, is absolutely looking a whole lot better in terms of what they're going to be teaching you in third, fourth and fifth class. Mm-hmm. Uh, so there's hope, but there is an awful lot to be deconstructed in all of that. And, and fighting and freezing and all of that is key. Most women will not fight. Most men won't fight back. Mm-hmm. So there's nothing to do with physicality. Mm-hmm. Culturally, it's about surviving. 
something and, and sexual yeah. violence is so it is a violent act mm-hmm. um so it's survival that's mm-hmm. what that piece is about and no most Absolutely. people don't know that yeah they don't yeah. it's definitely yeah. a long way to go in that but yeah. even like the victim blaming aspect of you know oh what were they wearing that's kind of one mm-hmm. of the, the quite common ones that we see yeah. but do you think there's change since was it three years ago, two years ago, the solicitor in court or the barrister lawyer, I always get them mixed up, held mm. up the, the pair of, of black lace pants, you know, the tongue and said, well, basically, you know, no one wears this unless they were out asking for it. And I, I did love the fact that the next day, like what? women, well, and men, like shut the country down yeah. with the, the protests and, yeah. and stuff like that. And I really thought that's a really good sign of, of change that we said, hang on a sec, like we're not accepting that and we, and we mobilized. So that was great. Mm-hmm. But do you think that that was the start of change or obviously there's still a lot more to go? But what was your thoughts working in this field around that? I'll go to you, Gemma, first on that one. um well horror i suppose is where you start with that it's like there's the criminal justice system that's supposed to be you know um balanced in all things and all that it's it was just it's one of those it's one of those myths that i don't believe it's broken down yet i mean if michelle's daughter can look down at herself because somebody beeps at them and wonders if her jeans are too tight it's not it's still there and it's that belief that probably more women than men I'm generalizing but that they carry that piece of like being too sexualized and if I'm too sexualized or I wear the wrong knickers or I have a low cut top or a short skirt then I'm actually looking for somebody to um like violently attack me mm-hmm. and that's just not the truth like we, we don't nobody goes out looking for that nor does anyone deserve that or need that in their lives and it's just yeah, it fills me. It yeah, it just makes me really angry. That's what it does to me. And I think I don't know, like how we break that down. It maybe it is getting into the younger age groups and knowing that they can wear whatever they want. But it's one of the most basic myths that we carry, and yet probably the three of us here carry it, yeah. unbeknownst to ourselves. Yeah. You know, we if we have daughters and our sons or anything going around and we're saying to them you're not going to dress like that and you, you hear yourself saying the words and and you where did that come from where like what generation did that actually come from and it probably wasn't me because I'd like to think that I you know don't carry myths however I think that's a dangerous place to sit I think we all do carry myths and we need to be aware that that they're there for us you know it's, it's more it's more unsafe if we if we think we don't have them actually yeah. and it's it's also okay like we're all products of our society mm-hmm. we've all had this drilled into us for years whether it's consciously or unconsciously and it's okay if you're only starting to kind of go oh I have all this stuff like yeah. nobody grew up perfectly without any biases or anything like you know we all had our parents telling us some things mm-hmm. we've all had the media saying things you know that that's it's there's no self-blame there but then once you're aware of it then the work comes in that has to be done to start unpacking all that so um there's a lot there so Michelle your thoughts on on that that court case which was just yeah absolutely nauseating stuff I you know I I rarely get filled with a sense of disgust but and it, it it's an added horror when another woman does it and we we know that's quite common it is the good thing about all of that was the reaction and the response. Mm-hmm. That's what makes the difference for me. It's like, there is your cultural change right there. Um, I'd like to think at some point that she 
effect up. You know, it's like she can look back on that and say that that was a pivotal moment in her career as a woman, you know, that worked in, in a fair legal system, which we know it's not. But the response is what makes it OK for me, because that's where the cultural shift absolutely happens. And, you know, I can say out loud, social workers don't get trained in all of this. So why would our judicial system get trained? You know, our, our police service doesn't get trained in all of this. So they're carrying all of that and fortifying all of that and doing an awful lot of harm, you know, in our culture. So there, you know, when I like we talk about education, maybe working or maybe not working, it has to work there when you're coming up against victims of sexual violence. It's key, absolutely key that, that there's an educated solicitor and an educated judge doing this work because the harm that gets created is just untold and, and serves nobody well in the long run, men, women systems nobody like that has to change that can't happen in a court of law where somebody's underwear is used against just has to stop yeah absolutely and I I thought it was powerful when I think it was Ruth Coppinger um for those outside of Ireland it's one of our um politicians and she held up a pair of underwear in the in the doll which is our parliament and said this is not consent I thought that was really good do you think like I've seen exhibitions before of people and they'll put clothes up on a wall and say this is what I was assaulted in and I think stuff like that is you know, if you were in that exhibition, I can imagine it'd be quite overwhelming because, you know, there's stuff from childhood there or, you know, like your worst granny pants with holes in it and stuff and, uh, you know, all this kind of thing. And it just showed that spectrum of actually, you know, you can be assaulted wearing absolutely anything, but I'm sure that would be quite an effective way of educating people rather than, you know, maybe some people are just not workshop people or lecture people, but they might sit in an exhibition like that and think actually that that's where it comes in. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So do you think we can get kind of quite creative with, with how we bring this message out there? We absolutely have to get creative because anything we've been doing up to this is not working and, and we're not hitting it where it needs to be hit. So I think a vast amount of people would not go to an exhibition like that. I mean, you, the three yeah. of us here on this screen would be there in a heartbeat. This is our world. It's what we do. And we want sexuality to be positive. So we want to eliminate the dark, the darker, the, the, you know, the negative aspects of that that we work in. But in reality, the very, you know, we say when we do parents evenings, the very parents that need to be attending are not the ones that are coming in the door. It's the already converted. So we need to be more, how do we look at that? Look at the vulnerable people in society, look at, you know, single parents who don't have a babysitter to go to a workshop even. Um, attending like educating outside of our traditional like not everybody goes to university a lot of kids don't go to secondary school you know there's a whole segment of society that's being left out in the social emotional and sexual education so Mm -hmm. we have to hit that as well we're not hitting the ground it's quite an elitist type of education um, that's happening and those that's not on the ground at all so we need to look more at that and get more creative and, and just do more of more podcasts even that you know people can access for free and and listen you know and that's where the culture yeah. shift will happen and listening I, t- I find you know the podcast great because you can listen in your own time and there's yeah. there's no one standing there with a quiz at the end and yeah, exactly. you know kind of you know judging you on your re- reactions because this is quite difficult for a lot of people to listen mm-hmm. to this kind of content and mm-hmm. I'm really grateful my listeners do listen so thank you very much for that but you know like you're saying it's kind of preaching to the converted sometimes and you know that aspect of things Gemma what are your what are your thoughts on that and how to move forward 
Um, I think what Michelle hit on there is exactly right with um, the people who come to everything that we run or everything that we show is are people who already have an interest, be it their own personal experience with life or they have children that they're trying to protect or whatever it is, and they know that they want to, that this is an issue. And I think um, how we get them in is with different ways of thinking about it. Like we think of workshops as these fabulous you know, all encompassing things that people take away from different aspects. But maybe that's not the way how other people learn. You know, maybe we need to get at them. And exhibitions like that are probably a bit too forceful for a lot of people because this topic is not something that people like to talk about. You know, even I know if I if I say to people, we did this podcast, it'll be like a few, a small cohort who might listen to it because it's too much for people. It's very triggering. They kind it's like better the stuff we don't know because it's too scary. It's it's too awful that this could happen to people. And yet, I suppose because we do work in the area, we see it every day that it's so common. So thinking outside the box is the answer to the question. I don't have that answer particularly, except for obviously I'm in I'm in the education route of that where we do run workshops and we are trying to get out to young people and older people and anyone who listened to us. Um, but I think we do need to come up with different ways. You know, even even things like the call of the Galway Rape Crisis Centre, the name Rape Crisis Centre causes fundraising issues. People don't want to come near you because the word rape is in it. You know, people are very, very, and, and I understand why, but they're very reserved about talking about it and dealing with it because it's just too horrific mm. as a concept. That this could happen. Yeah. And so I, therefore I will avoid it. I know we talked about this on the course and language really, really matters yeah. in a lot of cases. And the word rape is just so horrific that, mm-hmm. like you said, it's so overwhelming. And to call yourself a rape victim is so overwhelming. And many people don't even get to that point of, of acknowledging that. And yeah. That's also OK. There's no mm-hmm. pressure that anyone has to do that. But you can understand why it's so much but then I, I can imagine if, if you're trying to name that but then you're also trying to battle with victim blaming at the same mm-hmm. time I mean mm-hmm. what what is the impact of victim blaming on victims it's huge I mean it, it stops people coming forward you yeah. know and, and that's our that's obviously where we're coming from it's like we want people to walk through the door and start whatever healing process and what that looks like for them because it is different for everybody not everybody wants to be called a victim I think that's only important when you're going through the criminal process, that it's recognized as you are a victim of this horrible crime. But I I think going forward, you know, language is important. And I think in a lot of ways, it's gotten more academic and we've got lots of acronyms and we're moving away from the reality. Mm -hmm. So it's not child sexual abuse. It's an adult raping a child. And I'd be very, very clear on that. It's the same thing as raising your children and giving them all the proper names for sex and, and inappropriate touching. If we dress things up and smooth things out, if we make it too academic or we're going, then we're coming away from it. And that's where we struggle in Rape Crisis Centre because it'll come up every couple of years when we're you know, doing leaflets or business cards or whatever. Do we want to get rid of this? And yeah. 50% of us will say, yeah, it's a bit, it's a bit hardcore. It's the R word, you know, it terrifies the vast majority of females and men don't like it. And then there's another part going, no, hold on, right. It is what it is. Mm-hmm. So let's not soften it for society. Let's stay with the language that's important. 
So we, the last time we did this, we came up with, we would stay with the Galway Rape Crisis Centre and we put sexual abuse services underneath it to know that young people and young men can come forward because sexual abuse affects everybody. And we can talk about harassment and body shaming and image-based abuse. We're not just a rape crisis centre. So that was important that, we, that it encapsulates everything. But I do think we need to hold on to the or words. I, 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 I yeah. think it's really key that we do not soften this because people don't like it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, that's a good point. Yeah. And I, I think, Caroline, another big reason that people don't come forward actually is because they don't believe it's big enough or bad enough. Um, I know in NUIG they ran the sexual service. Um, oh my God, the name of it has gone from the me. Sexual the sexual experiences um, survey. Sexual experiences survey. Yeah, yeah. Like, yeah. Don't twist her. 2020. And um, like a huge percentage, I can't remember the percentages of it, but would say that they wouldn't disclose because it wasn't bad enough. So there's also that culture of the shame, the, the victim blaming shame part stops us even thinking that anything has happened. Mm. And that's like, that's, that makes me like gasp with my, you know, people would say, oh, this happened, but it wasn't that bad. Mm. You know, it, it didn't, it, sure it was over. It didn't happen. Like it didn't, I don't know if it happened. Maybe it happened, maybe it didn't. You know, and all, all this confusion around what's bad enough mm. sexual violence is, is, a, is another like black hole of mm. where do we start, you know? Um, and, and getting people to believe that it is bad enough and that you should come forward and you should get help. Um, and that's, that was a massive percentage of people. Yeah. And I can and see why. It, if it, oh, sorry, Michelle, go on. That it wasn't violent if there wasn't violence. Mm. A penetrative rape without consent is a violent act. Yeah. Just because he or she didn't have a gun or a knife to your, you know, very, very, very important. It's, it's that piece. We name it for what it is. And, you know, there's the fabulous book, I Never Called It Rape. That is a survival strategy where you can kind of keep away from, from the horror of all of that. Mm. But you don't have to either. You can come into a rape crisis center and we gauge all of that in the healing process. You never have to go into the details if you don't want to. You look at the effects of what this has done, this yeah. criminal act to your life. Um, yeah, I hope that answers the question. I've yeah, really I, th- I think that's really important there. Like... I- you know because i think again if we go back to the media the depictions of rape like you're saying in csi it's murder and violence Mm. and there's blood everywhere and cops everywhere and all this kind of stuff and like a a lot of rape of course is like that but a lot of it is not and it's you know it's coercion so there may be no overt violence but there is manipulation and um threats and you know verbal violence as opposed to you know that that in-person violence and you may not be left with any um physical injuries afterwards so that's why people kind of minimize it as well and they they look at that stuff on csi and go oh no it wasn't that bad so but yeah. then we don't yeah. understand that spectrum then of, of sexual violence and mm-hmm. how do we get that message out there that actually it, it's not how bad it is but there is a spectrum and it's all under that umbrella of sexual violence mm-hmm. Yeah, Yeah, I I think I had this conversation, Jen, and I had this conversation a few weeks ago about what annoys me about the media is, you know, let's name the facts here. Eight out of 10 rapes happen within relationships, and those are with ex-husbands, ex-boyfriends, ex-partners. So stranger rape is is not common, yet the government is still saying things like we need more lighting, we need more buses so that women don't have to walk. 
don't go into the woods, you know, crazy, crazy stuff. Mm-hmm. Where in reality, the, rela- the real sexual violence happens within relationships. Yeah. So again, it's about going back and changing the culture and really breaking that down. You know, what is coercive control? What doesn't feel good is probably not good and will probably escalate. So the relationship experience, that piece of, you know, the convention of the world and I, having worked in the Galway Rape Crisis Centre, I'd have seen it a lot of NUIG students who would have come in expecting a lifestyle, but completely and utterly disrupted by sexual harassment or having been raped or inappropriately touched in a nightclub and completely and utterly devastated, mm-hmm. not prepared for the world. And, so, and again, saturated in myths, so sitting in the self-blame. Yeah. So that's the piece, I think, that we can start doing where you don't have to educate about sex. Obviously, that's not going to happen in third and fourth class. But we can certainly talk about coercion, emotional abuse, bullying, mm-hmm. power and control, patriarchal system, breaking down genders. There's a ton of work that needs to happen before we talk about sexual consent. Mm-hmm an absolute ton of things that can that we can do you know with young people and old you know i read recently stis in nursing homes at the moment skyrocketing yeah yeah they haven't had the education like okay if you're gonna have three partners in a week maybe have three condoms at hand you know it's like the rest is none of my business but here's a condom yeah, Viagra and condoms and STI yeah. checks. Yeah, <laughs> it's a please. Good thing. Yeah, you know, for everybody. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. <laughs> Gemma, what are your thoughts there? Um, just my thoughts are around the third level um, students coming in, I suppose, because that's my new area of expertise. But it's that it's that sense of there is actually a known red zone for the first kind of semester of first year, where it is like young people coming in without a huge amount of knowledge around sexual violence, unless they happen to have happened upon one of the consent or disclosure trainings that go on in secondary schools. And like Michelle said, they go into nightclubs, they go into pubs and things happen. Them Like sexual harassment and violence goes on all over the place. And it is a massive, I suppose the fear for the universities is that it causes um, people to drop out, to leave. They're, they're absolutely distraught and traumatized after their experience very early on in college and it's it's a it's a big problem and I think that the education then has to come before they get to that point you know and and so it's how do you how do you do that and how do you educate them and what point do you step in and make it about consent and and where do you start with all the other stuff with all the manipulation and the the stuff that that children are surviving in their own homes anyway probably in a lot of cases So it's, you know, they know it and they're learning it and they go out into the world and they act out on that, of that place without kind of knowledge of what not to do. Yeah, yeah, there are toxic environments out there for sure. I always say that there are not toxic people, you know, but there are certainly toxic environments created by behaviors of of people that simply don't know. Yeah, Mm -hmm. absolutely. Intergenerational stuff. And we're only really kind of recognizing that that's really a thing in Ireland as well at the moment. So handed down embedded trauma. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I want to go back to Gemma there and the the whole nightclub thing. And, and, you know, first year college is usually a big drunken mess, you know, Mm -hmm. and lots of people have lots of sex and there's parties and it's getting fun, new friends. And it's often like the first year of like, freedom someone has yeah. you know you're you're not you're not doing the leaving certs you just yeah. kind of have a bit of a laugh and it's fine yeah. but then alcohol and, and drugs 
come into that quite a lot and they have a massive role to play in victim blaming whether that's people blaming victims or victims blaming themselves like oh I was drunk or oh they were drunk how do we how do we tackle that aspect of things um I think that the um again the act of consenting do a fabulous job where where they get exposed to that it's great um but I think there's a couple of different twists and turns in that because it's like anecdotally a lot of the clients that I would get in in say in that first year kind of second year of college throughout college actually because sexual violence we know increases as they go through college actually not decreases but um you know where they there's a lot of standard of I was at a party and I woke up and I went to bed drunk and some woke up with someone beside me having sex with me or I wasn't sure if I had sex or I didn't have sex and what I do was, what, did I have my knickers on? You know, they ask themselves all these questions and there comes the set, the victim blaming, that part of self-blame in it, of I let him into the bed, obviously, even though I was off my head, I didn't know what I was doing. And then the other side of it that has kind of struck me over the last couple of years is working with young guys in this. They, they have a really hard job deciding what consent is and at what point is consent and where do I end and where do I stop and what if she freezes and what if she said yes and now she's saying no and they beat themselves up for this and I'm seeing this more and more in the room with me where you've got a young guy who isn't sure that you know he did get consent and that now he's questioning was that consensual because that he's getting fed this information and it, so there's a there's a double-edged sword there for for all of them in that like yeah because legally it, once you've had a drink you cannot consent that's the law Technically. but that's like when you're dealing with in first year second year third year college students they've probably I mean as a complete guess 90% of them will have had a drink what at least one so you it's for me that part is probably the education part and it's getting it out there and it's getting them talking about it and it's getting them to actually openly ask for consent and not be afraid of asking for consent and getting the yes and getting it a second time and a third time if they need it you know to be reassured that yes this is definitely consensual but opening up that conversation among the young people and having them not afraid to talk about it you know when they're in that moment when they're in that situation that, of course, moves away from the person who's in bed already and this is happening to them. There's sexual violence. That's different. There is no consent. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And yet that person wakes up thinking, oh, did I let that happen? What happened? You know, and, and they go into that spiral. Isn't that mad, so, though, that we're, we're so groomed, I want to say, by society yeah. and everything else that, like, you can be unconscious and still f- try and figure out somehow, is yeah. this my fault? Still make sense of it in your head in some way. Like, find meaning yeah yeah finding meaning it's like yeah. how could I have stopped this so if I can start blaming myself I didn't lock the door I shouldn't have drank that much maybe maybe I should have worn a different outfit it's, it's all about how did I lose control here how did, how did I what does this mean now if I hadn't gone to that party if you know that that just caused yeah. that counter kind of factual totally logical and uh, that deconstruction happens in the first two or three sessions you know of when you're sitting with the victim it's like hold on a minute this had nothing nothing to do with you being pissed out of your head nothing at all somebody a perpetrator found you in a vulnerable scenario and decided here it goes mm-hmm. so let's hand all of that crap 
back onto his or her lap. Let's be really, really clear that it had nothing. And it's the first time a lot of these girls and lads will have heard that from an adult in their lives because they've never had a cup that they're endorsed in shame. They've never had a conversation around healthy sex or or inappropriate sex or drunk sex. Like drunk sex is still a very normal thing. And I would say in schools, and it's horrendous. There's nothing worse than drunk sex. Like, you know, it's generally no. not very satisfying a lot of the not time. Not good sex, you know, guys. Yeah. 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 A lot of orgasms. Yeah, that minimal like stuff. Yeah. So, yeah, of course, oh, sorry. Well, Michelle, sorry. No, but just that piece of being comfortable with her bodies. It's so easy to do that in your 40s and 50s because we've lived. But at 15 and 16, the, the, you know, that, that developmental piece, they're so incredibly self conscious. But the sex education actually needs to start at eight, nine, 10, and yeah. 11. You know, that, that's yeah, the feeling sure. piece, the looking at yeah. it. What yeah. is traumatic and what isn't? You know, what will really, really hurt somebody? I was having those conversations with my nine-year-old, you know, as, as he was growing up, obviously different household and all the rest. And he would push away. By the time they got to 13, it was like, don't you dare mention sex and my mother in the same room. Because <laughs> developmentally, he was freaking out. You have a window of opportunity between six and 12 before they push you away. And then, then they do come back. But that's, that's the time about boundaries, body respect. If it feels good, if it doesn't feel good, there are the times, you know, that you can absolutely fortify a child going out into the world about who they are their sexuality and and you know all of those things it's a powerful time do it then it's yeah. so much easier when you start younger absolutely absolutely and you're preparing them then because they're going to go into teenagehood and it's all going to mm-hmm. come at go an on. onslaught to them go and, on. you know and then we're in the world of porn then as well and yep. look there's amazing porn out there and i wish everyone watched the good stuff but a lot yeah. of people watch the bad stuff the cheap and, stuff yeah, yeah pay the free it. stuff yeah and the, yeah. if we all watch the good stuff we wouldn't have any problem i think in society because consent yeah. is modeled well it's respectful yeah. everything else but unfortunately that's not what a lot of people are watching but i want to go back there michelle to your comment there about um the stranger aspect and and how was it one percent you said it was um a stranger assaults or well a very low percentage anyway it, it, it moves it goes yeah. from anywhere between 87 and 97 percent of rape is you will know your perpetrator well you'll have been in a relationship with the perpetrator or you will work with the perpetrator so yeah. stranger rape falls anywhere between three and 13 percent given the year it okay. moves okay. obviously yeah so i wonder then with the victim blaming part of that how does that work for the victim because it's, it's almost that divide of like if you're walking down the street you're almost more of an innocent victim because this this stranger Cleaner. who came up and and you know grabbed you as you were just walking home but in a relationship so it's different. a lot more muddied and mm-hmm. oh well I, I I made them angry or oh well I was withholding sex or like all these like awful justifications that a lot of people might go through because they don't recognize the abuse and the grooming and the coercion and all that kind of stuff but how, do, how does a victim how does victim blaming work in that situation where you're in love with the, the perpetrator or you know them or you're related to them yeah, well, I think as, as one woman in her 70s said to me when we talked about stranger rape, she said, well, that's real rape. Yeah, I was like, what? Certainly cleaner, you know, uh, the victims of stranger rape um, just a few weeks ago on the radio, being empowered, being believed, went through the sexual assault treatment unit, went through a rape crisis, was, mm-hmm. were held, 
now on the local radio talking about being empowered and what we have to do to change culture. Easy, such an easy, you know, in and out in 25 sessions. Nothing like that if your father was the perpetrator or your brother was the perpetrator or you lived in a marriage where you were raped consistently by your husband for a decade. You know, I think we had marital rape, what, 90, I think it was 91, 92, where that went into law, where it was illegal to rape your partner. Very much more shame enhanced. And, and that horrible question, why didn't she leave? You know, somebody that doesn't truly understand the, the, the psychology behind victim blaming and how he gets into her head. So, you know, Don, Don Hennessy's book is, is amazing very different victim you know and and you can identify with the 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 28 year old walking home from work um who's accosted by a stranger and dragged somewhere and and assaulted um but nobody wants to identify with the wife that stayed in a in a toxic marriage where she was raped consistently nobody wants to identify with that but it's far more common than people want to realize yeah and a very different you know very different healing process if, if they are lucky enough to be able to leave that and of course some women never leave that yeah yeah, yeah. And, and that grooming I know Jimmy you work with younger people how how is that if you're in your 20s and you're only just figuring out what a relationship even is you yeah. know if you're in a marriage for 10 years that that's a slightly different experience mm -hmm. but if you're 18 19 20 and you're just going oh is this what a relationship is mm -hmm. and then sexual violence yeah. happens how, how yeah. do they make sense of that um with difficulty to be honest um i was working with somebody recently enough who, who had got out of a relationship a year ago a long kind of a long term for for her age she had been in like a four or five year relationship and her family were the ones that persuaded her to get out um, and she was still angry with her family a year later when I met her that they had made that decision for her. And even though she could reconcile the fact that they were right and that they obviously did see something that she couldn't see, she was really angry with them still that they had taken, I suppose in some way they maybe had taken the control out of her hands a little bit. But she was then, I suppose, as we worked, it was only then that her anger at herself for staying in the relationship came up. So she presented as angry with them. But in fact, when, when we dug down, she was just really angry with herself that she had stayed, that she hadn't seen it, that she didn't know it. And her biggest fear was she had met a new guy and she was terrified that it would happen again. And of course had heard that this happens again. And once you do it once, then you pick the same person again. And, you know, so there's a lot of work to be done. And luckily, in her case, she had come looking for help. So we could work through all that and figure all that out for her. When they're going through that by themselves, it's a very different because none of their peers understand it either necessarily. Um, or nor do they talk about it. So then it moves into long-term relationships where women don't admit it. They don't want people to see it because there's, again, massive shame around it. Or they might not even be consciously aware that it's happening. You know, we, we protect ourselves in all kinds of different ways. And sometimes that will be just hidden from our conscious mind that what's happening is happening. We will defend it in some way. Yeah, it's all so, survival, isn't it? Of just, yeah. It's too much to name sometimes. Yeah. And, and it's yeah. easier to be angry at other people than admit that. It, it's not even an admission, but like to yeah. recognize, you know, what, what's going on yeah. there. And even in that, Caroline, I suppose, is to work with her to realize that she stayed, but he was doing it. 
do you know so you're still you're gone back even she even in the fact that she's blaming herself for staying there is victim blaming again because it was him that was actually at fault not her and yeah. and so there was a big work around there to get to that with her that's huge yeah the, the, that whole like why do they stay in the relationship it's so complex of an answer Horrible. but yeah it's like one of the first things people go to, through and they do that in domestic violence as well but yeah there's so much in that and people aren't recognizing the grooming and coercion and threats and and mm. oh so much aspect of it yeah. but do you think that um you know if we're talking about sexual violence being a spectrum um, even things such as, you know, I worked with Ella One recently, the morning after pill um, company, and there is a statistic and I'm going to I mean a bad representative now, but I'm forgetting it. But it was something like 8 percent of um, the women in the survey because um, they didn't unfortunately study non-binary people, but just um, women um, had said that they had to take the morning after pill because their male partner refused to wear a condom. And that wasn't named as sexual violence. And I feel like. I, do you think things like this are really quite common? You know, I've worked with young girls coming to my workshop and said, um, oh, my partner refuses to get an STI test. And I've kind of said, well, he what, what they're saying there is if someone's refusing mm -hmm. to get an STI test, they don't care if they pass anything on to you. And that blows people's minds to kind of think yeah. about it like that, as that is a form of sexual violence. Mm -hmm. 100%. <laughs> it is. Yeah. It's the, like it's the beginnings of something much bigger, actually. It's a red flag. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Absolutely. Get ra red carpet-sized flag, <laughs> just <laughs> yeah. raising it around the zone. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Um, so, so if someone is is kind of still in that state of um, self-victim blaming, and they're in that phase of oh, I shouldn't have done this, and I did this, and I should have done that, and everything else, but they want to come and get support because they know something's happened, but they're still not, you know there yet and naming it or anything but they know something's happened and they're still blaming themselves obviously your, your service is not going to judge anyone for walking through the door and saying god i'm such a stupid idiot i passed out asleep or all these things we say to ourselves yeah. absolutely not no no never no. ever yeah um, yeah it's not going to happen in student counseling and it's not going to happen at a rape crisis center yeah. i think it doesn't happen other places yeah. um med you know medics can be some of the worst they can say some of the most horrendous things and and that's what we find ourselves unpacking in a rape crisis center i'm sure it's the same in student counseling mm -hmm. um is it's taking away it's like a, a an onion and taking the layers away when they're making those horrible self-blaming remarks about themselves you know so really delving into that well, what makes you think that this was your fault and yeah. so gently going and very gently naming and pulling back and allowing that to sit a little bit longer and mm -hmm. carefully you know it's like when you throw a stone into a pond and, the, and there's ripples mm -hmm. it's like you're working with that carefully because it's always far superior to for them to name these things for themselves rather than you that's not your job you know as a therapist or a counselor and you do that gently and carefully and when the time is right you know, then you go in and go can we place the blame exactly where it belongs which is in the perpetrator's lap mm -hmm. you know Absolutely. you were groomed you were coercively manipulated you know his frustration became he was antagonizing you like all of those things so you start to help them name mm -hmm. um and and again it can take it can take a few weeks uh, it depends on how long they were entrenched in a in a toxic traumatic relationship that where there was sexual violence 
but there's huge hope for that if that can if that person can be removed from an environment like that it doesn't take years for that to shift and change and kind of evolve into something stronger when she's not or he's not we know that there's a huge amount of men being sexually assaulted um, by their wives and coercively abused by wives as well so it's really important to say that um it's a human issue it is well. yeah unfortunately you know, is, yeah. Are, are there is there more of a victim blaming aspect for some men or maybe i imagine that would be more like a self-blame thing because toxic masculinity of men are meant to be stronger mm-hmm. and um you know the the I think men are so often placed in the perpetrator role that we forget mm-hmm. that about men being in the victim role. Is that harder then for men to come forward and, and get through the victim blaming aspect? Yeah, it's absolutely twofold. Um, it, it, it's the same. It's, it's, it's done the same. Yeah. The harassment looks the same. The coercive manipulative control looks the same. The, the anger gets played out in the relationship. It's, it's just the gender is switched. And men feel far, far more shame. I say this all the time and I don't have the research to back it up, but obviously I've read that it's 400% more difficult for a man to knock on the door of a rape crisis center or a domestic violence center Mm -hmm. um, and say that he's being abused by a woman. So there's that whole toxic masculinity piece, Um, but it is happening. And I think it's really important that we say it. I wouldn't even like to think about what the statistics of men out there who are struggling with all of that by themselves is like I said we don't we don't know no. um it's a it's a great big hidden secret yeah I think and I think it's a secret in our society very much as a because the more we see it the more we realize how it is happening yeah. um and they can't they just can't come forward or they find it really really hard um so it's it's that's a really hard one to to overcome Absolutely. because of that like masculinity rubbish that's in the middle of it that they're supposed to not this is not supposed to happen to me mm-hmm. there's more of it there's the victim again absolutely absolutely yeah and then uh, so blaming should i say sorry okay, yeah grand and and then so for people who you know have listened and and kind of have felt okay now is the time for me to reach out and, and get some help where can people find yourselves to to approach and is there um opening hours or anything like that or is it 24 hours Let's start with Galway. So there's 16 rape crisis centres in Ireland. Um, Galway, double main one, and that's that's what's the number. Our own 800 number is 1-800-355-355. But Dublin is open 24 hours a day. Galway, unfortunately, only open from 10 in the morning until 1. But if you, you can call any rape crisis centre and get more information and have that conversation over the phone, but talk to somebody. You know, if it's too hard to pick up the phone to us, certainly go go to your go go talk to the Gemmas in, in you know, and it starts with a simple conversation, and it just widens from there. And if they can help you get into whatever you need, sexual assault treatment unit, rape crisis center, it's a phone call away. It's just a conversation, not to be frightened that you deserve that. You deserve to be helped out of this. Um, uh, there is a survivor number for males, um, survivors um, of abuse, but I don't have it in my head right now, but it's there. They're out there. I can put that in the show notes anyway for people. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. And, and then Gemma, you are student counselling, which most universities would have student counselling, hopefully. Yeah, so I'm I'm based in NUI Galway, but I think every university has student counselling and we are definitely open. 
and working and it's busy so that's that's good and all that doesn't like all the different universities would have different ways of accessing um counseling but i just go on your university website and you'll find the you'll find the answers in there you know but i mean as michelle said it's not even like i'm from student counseling she's the rape crisis center i would suggest reach out to somebody um, and start there you know and and see where you can go and there's like there's many, many very good therapists around the country who are, you know, who are willing to listen as well and may be able to guide you or, you know, it may just be a starting point for you or just tell a friend, like, don't hold this in. Tell somebody and, and reach out and see what it feels like to just say it. Absolutely. Yeah. And there's lots of options out there oh. for people and stuff. Yeah. Um, and for any listeners, if you want to ring any helplines, Women's Aid is 1-800-341-900. So that's 1-800-341-900. Men's Aid is 01-554-3811. And it may be helpful for some is CARI, which deals with adult victims of childhood sexual abuse, which is one 890 Sorry, one eight nine zero nine two four five six seven. So that's one eight nine zero nine two four five six seven. And I can put those numbers in the show notes as well if you miss them there. But Michelle and Gemma, thanks, Emil. I'll have to have you back on because obviously we're only touching the iceberg and um, the, the top of the iceberg um, <laughs> w- w- with this. And I think it's going to be, you know, a good few conversations. But I'm really glad that we can lay out this space at the moment um, for listeners. And, and just kind of know that there are compassionate people like yourselves out there ready and willing to support and some people are 24 7 so if you need to talk at four in the morning somebody will be there to listen so that's yeah. really helpful so thanks Mel um for chatting to me today thanks Caroline thanks no Caroline for creating thanks. the forum Thank you. And for any of my listeners, if you want to reach out as well, at the Instagram and Twitter is Glow West Podcast. Um, if you've listened to this and, you know, you might feel a little bit upset or triggered, if you want to drop me a DM and I can point you in the direction um, of services that may be in your area or national phone numbers as well. So I appreciate all my listeners tuning in and I'll chat to you next week.